According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him. Oh, you are an angel. Thank you, ma'am. What a blessing. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Moving on to episode 3. In the uh, final week of work at Jerusalem, I handed out a, a, pa- a page. Did you get one? I handed out a page on the... Uh, we've, we've given out these harmonies before. And this is just the... Uh, kind of the final page or two. It's a four-page document. If you want the whole thing, I can get you that as well. But... This uh, will just simply give you the schedule from this point moving forward, the final week in Jerusalem and all the episodes that are there. And then if you flip over to the backside, you have the post-resurrection events between the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus had uh, almost 40 days of ministry uh, on the earth. Oh, those are the master copies, <laughs> which I photocopied and duplexed. Uh, so here, take the two-sided copies and you'll be good. All right. Anyway, this will kind of give you your scorecard. Uh, we've already covered episodes three and, um, I'm sorry, two and four. Because I combined the cursing of the fig tree with the, uh, the message, the withered fig tree testifies. And so uh, we, we have already covered episodes two and four. Today we're going to back up and, uh, and get episode three, the attraction of sacrifice. And this will take us a number of weeks because there is so much doctrine to be contained or to be found in, uh, in this chapter. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 50. Verses 20 through 50. So it's a very lengthy section. And uh, let's get our first glimpse at it and then we can open in prayer. John 12:20 says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All right, now that's the first section. Like I said, it's very lengthy, and so we're going to take it bite by bite and work our way through this chapter. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure as believer priests we are filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again this morning for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. Father, thank you for the uh, couple of weeks off and the the vacation break, but it's good to be back and good to be back in the life of Christ steady. We ask for your blessing upon our time as we continue day by day through the Passion Week. We're dealing with uh, events here on Tuesday of the uh, Crucifixion Week, and uh, there's a lot of meat that we need to dig out of this text. So I thank you for it. I ask for your blessing upon our time and upon our study. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 
All righty. Before we, well, let's go ahead and get point one in our study. And to do this, we'll back up a single verse to verse 19 and remind ourselves that in that episode, uh, there was a bit of dismay on the part of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' dismay at Jesus' fruitful ministry finds an immediate application when some Greeks requested to see Jesus. Um, Back in verse 19 uh, on the triumphal entry on Palm Monday, um, the Pharisees were just livid at the uh, reception that Jesus was receiving, all of the singing of Hosanna and all these things. And so um, they want to put a stop to it. And uh, in verse 19, we read John 12:19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. And they, they're saying that in, in dismay, as if that's a problem, as if that's a bad thing, all right? We read it, we think, hooray, you know, hallelujah, the world has gone after him, isn't that great? Um, now, it is a bit of hyperbole on their part, it's a bit of an exaggeration on their part, and yet, in their carnality, in their dark, not carnality, if they're saved, but in their darkness, their statements of wickedness, there's a kernel of truth that God the Father brings out. Indeed, the world has gone after him, both Jew and Gentile have responded to his message. And so it is in that context immediately when when they declare that the world has gone after him that a delegation of Gentiles arrives, a delegation of Greeks arise. And so we see that here now in verse 20. There were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. So they are, uh, I believe they're believing Gentiles. Uh, The text does not give us enough information to find out if they were full-scale uh, proselytes that had gone through whatever um, the, the process was in that time to uh, to become proselytes, but they clearly came up to worship. Their stated purpose was to worship at the feast, the coming Passover that would be arriving this coming Friday. And uh, so we see the application of it there. How many Greeks? Well, how many is some? All right, how many is some? Sub point A, some Greeks. Now, Some doesn't give us an exact number, but we know that some is more than few. And we know that some is also less than many. Okay? These are the adjectives that you can, the indefinite adjectives you can apply. It doesn't say a few Greeks, where we would think, you know, two or three or even up to six. Say half a dozen could still be considered few. Uh, If you reach a complete dozen, then it's no longer considered few. I don't think in, in any Greek passage I've ever seen. All right? Um, but then how many do you get to before you reach many? Okay. Uh, because a dozen wasn't considered many. I think you need a couple of dozen uh, to be considered many. All right. So, uh, however large this was, we, we struggle sometimes because we're not, we're separated by 2000 years of, of culture and history, but the idea of, uh, consider how travel was in the ancient world. If you're going to travel uh, from a, a distant land to reach here for this pilgrimage, you weren't just going to travel with two or three. You were going to travel with a significant caravan. Uh, keep in mind, like when Jesus didn't uh, uh, leave Jerusalem on that occasion, his parents thought, well, he's just got to be somewhere here in the caravan because there's hundreds that are traveling here in the safety of numbers and the guards and the escorts that they had to go from uh, Jerusalem back up to, uh, to Nazareth. So who knows? Um, are there a dozen Greeks here? Are there 20 Greeks here? Something uh, probably um, between one and two dozen, I think, is, is the number here. But the uh, significant thing is, I think, uh, the text doesn't give us a lot of the whys, doesn't explain the details, but it gives us the details. 
And the fact that the text is giving us these details uh, causes us to at least acknowledge them and give it consideration as to why this is significant. Why don't they just approach him directly? Why do they have to go to Philip first? And why does Philip not just say, okay, I'm, I'm one of the twelve. I'm, I'm, I'm an apostle here. Uh, I'll take you straight to Jesus. Philip doesn't do that. He goes through Andrew first. All right. And so some of this leaves probably more questions than answers, but we do get glimpses in how the inner workings of the twelve operate and what was exactly Andrew's role. I'd encourage you to uh, you know, hunt down every time Andrew is ever mentioned in the Gospels. And uh, from the very first to here at every other instance you can find, there aren't many, but every time you see Andrew, you know what he's doing? He's bringing people to Christ. All right, Starting with his own brother, Peter. He's bringing Peter to Christ. Because Andrew was one of the first disciples that saw Christ uh, with um, John the Baptist there. And he went running to get Peter and bring Peter to see the Christ. So this is uh, pretty typical here for, uh, for Andrew. In any event, some Greeks, there's neither many nor few. But it is a significant number. And Jesus views it as being um, a fulfillment of prophecy. Secondly, we observe in this text, um, not entirely sure why, but we note it as, as the reality that Philip from Bethsaida was their point of contact. Philip from Bethsaida was their point of contact. These men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And and significantly, the town appears to have a correlation to why they chose him. Uh, Perhaps they were from the same region, or the region uh, actually bordered a Gentile region there called the Decapolis. It was northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida would have been the nearest Jewish town uh, there on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Also, Philip is a Greek name. Uh, Andrew is a Greek name. They're not Hebrew names. They're Greek names. And so uh, we don't know why Philip was named Philip or who his parents were or anything in terms of his tribe. But he had a Greek name, and that's usually thought of as as being... uh, one of the components involved with this. We just don't know. More questions than answers. But the text makes it significant that he was the point of contact. Bethsaida, his hometown, was a reason for, was also the town of Peter and Andrew, was the reason uh, that these Greeks selected him as their point of contact. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And uh, once Andrew had the uh, was brought on board, then together, Andrew and Philip were able to bring these Greeks to Christ. Um, I was pondering this as well, actually, in the shower this morning. Uh, there are other disciples. Uh, Thaddeus is a Greek name. Uh, Lebius, okay. Uh, some of them, though, are, are Greek, but they have a kind of a Hebrew name behind them. And so it's, it's really hard to say. I believe they were all Jewish, but uh, the fact that they had Greek names, like Peter, uh, his real name was Levi, and then Christ gave him a Greek name when he called him uh, Petros. So anyway, some of that maybe is... Um, We'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find out all the details, all right, on, uh, on the different things. Thirdly, though, the text does not record what their exact question was. They asked him a question. Look with me here. We'll, we'll write down the point in a moment. But um, So Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. Jesus answered them. And, and some people think that he was answering Andrew and Philip. Um, but it's more natural to believe that he was answering the, 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 the Greeks, the questions that the Greeks had. And uh, what was their question? What was it they wanted to know? The text does not record the specific question or questions that this Greek delegation was asking. But his response, his response teaches the reality 
of death and life. He talks about the seed that has to go into the ground. The Lord's response teaches the reality of death and life. And I wanted to put it in that order um, because that's the order we see it here in this text. It's kind of a backwards order from what normal humanity thinks about it, right? If we talk about something being very, very serious, what do we say? We say, yeah, it's a matter of life and death. Okay, it's the most serious thing in the world because it's a matter of life and death. Well, I like the fact that the Bible tells us there's things more important than that. <laughs> All right, because physical life, what's that? It's just a moment, momentary light afflictions. But when you reverse the order and you make it death and life, you actually match the order of what he talks about here. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so here the order is the death which enables the real life, the spiritual life and the eternal life to, to come into existence and to, and to bear much fruit. This is similar to what Paul will use in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the, the planting and the sowing and the reaping and how the body goes into the ground and then it comes forth. Teaching the reality of death and life. Now, it's interesting. Resurrection from the dead was a concept for derision among most Greeks. This whole idea. Uh, let's turn over to Acts 17 and we'll see another context in which a Greek audience is being uh, instructed in eternal values. In this case, it's the Apostle Paul and uh, his sermon here on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17 And the key verses are in verses 31 and 32. But the entire context is worth a look, and in particular because I think it, it answers a lot of the questions we have as pertaining to Gentiles and the Gentile destiny and Gentile nations and things that maybe we want to focus on as a Gentile nation ourselves in the earthly realm. So... Um, Here's Paul, and, and remember, at this point, in his second missionary journey, everything has exploded, okay? Everything has exploded. The, the ministry is going great. I mean, he, it started off with a departure from Barnabas, but then he added Silas, he added Timothy, he added Luke, and probably Titus, and, and they, they crossed over into Europe with just everything looking awesome. He had a team, he had an apostle, he had a prophet, he had an evangelist, he had a pastor teacher. He had all the gifts from Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he receives a vision in, not, in the night and uh, there's a man in Macedonia saying, come on over here. And so what could be more solid on the will of God than that? And so they get on a boat, they go to Europe. The gospel first reaches Europe. And all of a sudden then everything starts to unravel in earthly terms. God, of course, is in complete charge. But the first thing that happens, they reach Macedonia and they find out that that man was actually a woman. There was Lydia over there. And, and, then, and then they get beaten and then they get thrown into prison. And then Luke and Titus drop out and then they get to Thessalonica and they're beaten. They're not beaten, but they're run out of town there. And then they get to Berea and they're run out of town there. And uh, all the indications are when you, when you track through this here that, that uh, Luke remains at, at uh, Philippi and Timothy sent back to Thessalonica and Silas is left at Berea. Because when he gets to Athens, he's alone. He's alone. And so, so much for this team, <laughs> right? This team immediately got scattered in, in all of these towns that they were going to. And um, so much so that by the time you get to chapter 18 and Paul comes crawling into Corinth, his description is that he was there in fear and weakness and in much trembling. 
So this is his uh, solo ministry now in Athens. And he stood in the midst of the Areopagus in verse 22 and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And this was very much in keeping with, with the Greeks. You know, they had their pantheon. They had Zeus and Apollo and all these other gods. And uh, just in case they missed one, they, they went ahead and erected this altar as well. Okay? Um, to an unknown God. Well, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, because God is, is knowable. You don't have to wonder about the what ifs. And maybe we missed a God out there. And maybe there's a God we don't know about. Paul says, yes, you don't know about him. Well, let me tell you about him. Okay. The God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all peoples life and breath and all things. And now that right there, that short little phrase right there just destroys the entire Greek pantheon. Okay, I mean, if you know anything about mythology, if you know anything about the Greek gods, all right, they were horrible. All right, go watch Clash of the Titans sometime, or you know, read some uh, read some mythology. I mean, these gods had issues. They uh, they were they were angry, they were selfish, they were lustful, they were they they envied, they stole from one another, they tricked one another, they they uh, they were you know they were just deified reflections of fallen humanity is all they were because they were the invention of fallen humanity, all right? Or the demons that motivated them. And they were very needy. Very needy. They demanded money. They demanded sacrifices. They demanded all this stuff. And so when Paul says, you know what? God doesn't need anything we can give Him. God provides us everything we need. This is uh, pretty revolutionary, actually. To a Greek mind. And it says he made in verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God is in charge. His sovereignty determines. His sovereignty determines when the uh, United States of America would be born and his sovereignty determines when the United States of America will be destroyed. Their appointed times from beginning to end. And the boundaries of their habitation. Why do you think Satan hates boundaries so much? Borders are God's design. And each people, each tribe, tongue, and, and you know the language and, and the national boundaries are God's design. The whole effort to blur all that, the whole effort to have a, a one world rule and all that, that's just headed towards Antichrist is what it is. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In every Gentile nation, God has preserved a testimony. He's preserved a witness. And that's exactly what he was doing when he scattered the Jewish people and sent them to the four corners of the earth. And it is interesting. Of course, the Jewish people will be the global evangelists in the, in the coming tribulation. All right. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. He takes a pagan quote and he brings it into a spiritual application. Now, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And then verse 30, uh, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now 
declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, Gentiles could get saved in the Old Testament, certainly. So is Jews could get saved in the Old Testament, absolutely. But the post-resurrection reality of, of the changes that happen in evangelism, uh, evangelism prior to the cross was a coming Messiah. Messiah is coming. Evangelism after the cross. Not only did Messiah come, he did come, a past completed action, but he also removed the sin of the world. He also has now furnished proof through the resurrection of the dead. There is now something that's offered beyond salvation. You say, well, what else do, we what else do you need beyond salvation? The newness of life. The newness of life. The power that comes in the church age that they didn't have. Believers prior to the cross didn't have this newness of life that we have. Oh, they were saved. They had eternal life. But they weren't walking in that newness of life with a risen Savior seated at the right hand of the Father. They weren't walking in that newness of life with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is a, a tremendous gospel message that's for us and us alone in the church age. So having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Then when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. This was absolutely a concept for derision. A concept for derision among most Greeks. But others, we shall hear you again concerning this. And um, that could be thought of as possibly a, a positive volition response that, well, uh, we're positive at the point of God, of God consciousness. Maybe we need more information or we could hear you again for... Um, uh, on a positive volition base. Others think that, well, maybe they would just like the entertainment value of it. Hard to say. But Paul went out of their midst and so forth. Anyway, resurrection from the dead was a concept for derision among most Greeks. And yet here comes this party of Greeks. They want to see Jesus. And what does he say? He says, now the time has come. The time has come. Let me get back to John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Think about the um, significance of this. How many episodes have we gone through now in the, in the Galilean ministry, in the Perean ministry, in the, the early Judean ministry, and all these times? And what have we read every single time? His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Uh, they tried to kill him. They couldn't because his hour had not yet come. And now a delegation of Gentiles arrives. He's already been presented to Israel with a triumphal entry on Palm Monday. And now on Tuesday, a Gentile delegation arrives. And this is the point where he says, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He knows he's in the Passion Week. He knows this Friday is Passover Friday. The Passover lamb is going to be slain. And Christ, our Passover, is going to die. The hour has come. Previous encounters featured an individual Gentile. Can you think of the previous Gentiles he's been exposed to? There's the Syrophoenician woman, right? There was a Roman centurion. There have been a handful of encounters with, with Gentiles, but every single time it was a lone Gentile by himself or herself. This is the first time now that an actual party, an actual group, a significant number, this appears to be unique actually. 
and contributes to the common confession of the church, 1 Timothy 3.16. I believe this was his final, this had been revealed to him. That when the, the uh, group of Gentiles arrived with a question they had, that he was to take, accept that as being the, the, um, the moment where he could say, now the hour has come. 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. This is a hymn. A psalm composed by Paul here in 1 Timothy, and it's, it's one that we all can sing. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations or the Gentiles. That's what's being fulfilled here in our episode we're studying today, this party of Greeks that are coming with their questions for the Lord. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He didn't have a significant Gentile ministry. In fact, there were occasions where he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of, of Israel. When he sent his disciples out two by two, he sent them only to Israel. He said, avoid those Gentile towns. But now this party of Greeks has come. And uh, this is the, the fulfillment of what we're seeing there. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. The previous encounters featured an individual Gentile, but this episode appears to be unique, contributes to the common confession of the church. And it is interesting when, um, when the gospel begins to um, spread, when it starts to go beyond Jerusalem and Judea, where's the first place that it starts to take root? Among the Greeks. It starts to take root in Antioch where they were first called Christian, and among the Greek-speaking believers there in Antioch. And it is interesting, and I wonder how many of those Greeks in Antioch were part of this party right here. There's no way to know, but it's, it is significant. It didn't start to spread among the Egyptians or the Arabs or the, the uh, Persians or, or, other, or other peoples. The Romans eventually gets to Rome. But the first Gentile encounters, the first church that gets planted, is among the Greeks, is at Antioch. All right. Now, secondly, point two, and where we'll spend the rest of our time today. Jesus responds to his soul trouble. Look with me at verse 27. Jesus responds to his soul trouble. He didn't like giving this message to the Gentiles. And he was faced with uh, with a crisis moment. We all get this from time to time. Jesus responds to his soul trouble by engaging in a patriological prayer focus. Paterology is the doctrine of the Father. He starts locking in on who his Father is and starts worshiping with his Father. Engaging in a paterological prayer focus on the Father's purpose and the Father's glory. And it's a huge device and each one of us needs to learn this lesson and start engaging in similar practices. He says in verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled. My soul has become troubled. And I appreciate the, the, the brutal honesty on this. I like it when Scripture describes the struggles that uh, the believers have, from Abraham to David to whoever, and even the Lord, admitting this isn't easy. You say, well, he's God. He can do anything. He's also man. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And his humanity had to be tested in these things, even as we are. If he didn't face a soul discouragement, then there's a realm of humanity that he can't identify with. And so what are you and I going to do when we have our soul discouragements? 
He had to experience this. He had to have victory in this. So that when we experience this and he intercedes for us as our advocate, he relates and he takes that to the Father. And I find it remarkable. This is, uh, this is a part of what we evaluate when we talk about uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. And uh, what is it that secular counselors are trying to do instead of what the Word of God does when I decide that, well, I need something besides Scripture for my problems. I need, I need psychotherapy or I need medication or I need something beyond Scripture. And I look at passages like this and I say, does God provide for us or does He not? Is all Scripture sufficient or is it not? Of course, you know me, Scripture is sufficient because it says it's sufficient. So my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. See, Jesus was purpose-driven long before those other books ever got written, okay? (laughs) The Father's purpose. I tell you, if you and I just keep dwelling on our problems, they're going to grow. And the longer we focus on our problems, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger the longer I, I fixate on it. But if I flush that from my mind and I start focusing on what the Father's doing and the work of God in my life and why has He put me here, why, uh, how can I contribute to His glory through victory in this work assignment, then I'm not dwelling on the problem. And I'm not, my God's growing bigger and bigger and bigger while my problem's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, you understand. What shall I say? What shall I say? Hmm. Well, the message to the Gentiles brought the coming crucifixion into undeniable soul trouble. Undeniable soul trouble. Like I said, he was presented to the Jews the day before. The triumphal entry. Palm Sunday. Palm Monday, I'm sorry. And uh, there was some, there was a remnant that responded positively, but the rulers were all hostile. And uh, we view this as the rejection by the Jewish people. And then the next day now, Gentiles. There's no backing down, okay? It's like that moment on a roller coaster. We just spent two weeks doing roller coasters, right? There's a moment. And it's not when you're in line. And it's not when you're at the front of the line. And it's not even when you're getting into the the, the deal. Okay? And it's not even when you buckle it down. Although that's close. Okay? It's when you buckle it down and then the machine itself locks it in. Then there's, you're done. You can't get out. There's no human way to depart that train at that point because it starts to crank you up the deal. And once it's cranking you up the deal, you're out of options. Okay? There are no more volitional choices that can be made at that point because you're locked in. And it's cranking you up the deal. And the only way off that roller coaster is to ride it through to the, to the ecbasis, right? And then it releases and you get off and you praise the Lord that you lived. Okay? <laughs> now, I love roller coasters. I haven't, well, okay, I've, I've encountered a couple that scared me. But I don't think they've invented one yet that really scared me or made me puke. Okay? But still, there's that moment when you're locked in and the device locks it in and it starts cranking you up the deal and you know, all right, no more volition. It's all sovereignty now, <laughs> okay? 
you become very Calvinistic on a roller coaster when you know that the, <laughs> the sovereignty of God is going to get you through there. Okay, um, that's is where Jesus is. I'm trying to illustrate. He's locked in, presented to the Jews, presented to the Gentiles, and he's had he's known it for weeks. He's known it. He, in fact, last Saturday he gave a message when when Mary was anointing his feet with the oil and. And he said, she's preparing me for my death. And so he's known about it for, for months now. He's known that the next Passover is the, is the cross. But he's still at a point of no return here where volitionally now he's going to have to surrender his will to the Father and say, not my will, but thine be done. And he's going to have to be honest with himself to admit that his humanity has a fear. And his humanity is considering sin. And that's going to take a lot of work. We're going to have to deal with that today and next week. And we're going to have to consider what was the nature of this temptation. God cannot sin. But how does this apply to the humanity of Christ as the God-man? And what was he afraid of? What was he warning his disciples about when he said, Pray that you may not enter into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What was the vulnerability of his flesh? And so he brings it into a focus here. And he says, What shall I say? When you start examining options, okay, um, understand a couple of things. Understand that it's normal. Also understand that it's not carnal. Jesus isn't examining this. I mean, he is examining this, and he's not sinning. He's still sinless and perfect when he goes to the cross. So for the hypothetical to come to him, do I have a point here? Yeah, subpoint one now under under A. I'm going to give you four points, and if I take 20 minutes to do it, that's great. Okay? The troubled soul brings Jesus to a point of hypothetical consideration of alternatives. The troubled soul brings Jesus to a point of hypothetical consideration of alternatives. And this is normal. This is human. This is a part of how temptations form. It includes sinning, sinning alternatives. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I don't want to go to the cross. Change your plan. Scrap your plan. Take my plan. Okay. And it's just a hypothetical here. He even realizes that he can't say that. But he knows he wants to or he could. Remember, to consider, and, and again, we've all done it. I can show you scriptural examples, and I can testify to, to real experiences here. We've all done it. It doesn't mean it's sinful to consider. A temptation is not a sin. But sin conceives when you make the decision that that's what you're going to do. Okay? Thinking about what you could do is not the same as deciding what you're going to do. Understand that? Deciding what you're going to do is when you commit the mental attitude sin. <laughs> the other day, Zoe thought I was quitting the church. She thought I was um, not going to be a pastor anymore. And, and I forget what I was really saying. It wasn't like that, but that's what she thought I was saying. And uh, it was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> she didn't want me to quit, and I don't want to quit. But the... Um, if I'm not going to be a pastor, I might as well just go to heaven because that's my only reason for being on earth. So 
Uh, but the idea that she thought I was thinking about that was what was so extraordinary. So he gave us a chance to talk about different things. Um, but I'd be lying if I was to tell her or you or anybody else that the thought never crossed my mind, right? That if I wasn't a pastor, what would I do or where would I go or, or, or whatever? Um, you know, the, the, the stray random thoughts that come in that if you feed them can, uh, can take you somewhere you don't want to go in your, in your thinking, in your mental attitude. They can lead to additional temptations. And the worst thing is, if you spend all your life daydreaming in what you don't have, then it fosters the, the bitterness and resentments and, and envy and jealousy and, and different things. So it's, it's not edifying. But here he is with the what if. And so I just want to encourage you that, that to, uh, to consider such things is not um, carnal. But look what he does immediately. He has to stop it and say, no, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So when the what if comes across, you have to stop and say, no, if that's not his will, then I don't want it. Because I only want his will to be done. And how many times does he have to do this here? Because he does it here. He does it again, I think, in chapter 13. He does it again, I think, in chapter 17. He does it again in chapter 18. And... um, and some of these we don't see in John, but we see them over in the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke parallels in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not in the Garden of Gethsemane yet. So this is going to come up again. How, how, how often is his soul going to be troubled this week? I think it's going to be troubled on Thursday, or Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, Thursday night, Friday morning. And so I find that interesting. Understand, secondly, God is a Savior... But he doesn't save us from his sovereign assignments. God is a savior. The word deliver us or save us. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's sozo. That's the word for our salvation or for our deliverance. God is a savior. But he doesn't save us from his sovereign assignments. God assigned this. God assigned the cross for Jesus to go to and Jesus willingly accepted that assignment. Is he going to save him from what he assigned? Hmm. You know, it's almost like, again, Job with Mrs. Job. Shall we accept only the good from God and not the adversity? God assigned them both. We wouldn't ask God to save us from our prosperity testing. Well, maybe we need to. (laughs) All right. Save us from, you know, bad things are happening. See, here's here's the key. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? Jesus is saying that's a bad prayer. That's a bad prayer. But for this purpose I came to this hour. This is where God wants me to be. That's why the knee-jerk prayer responses are are typically wrong. When um, you you, you find out that someone has a... uh, There was a prayer item that went out this morning. You probably haven't seen it because... it just went out while you were here already at prayer meeting, but um, uh, it went out on the prayer list uh, for a, a classmate of Robbins at, at Concordia University who just had a, a breast cancer diagnosis. All right. So you, you learn that you have breast cancer. What's your first prayer? I don't want it. <laughs> Take it away. Jesus here says, shall I say, deliver me from this? No. Who gave it? Who assigned it? Who is in charge? Why do you have breast cancer? What's the purpose for your breast cancer? 
God doesn't give you a test with the purpose of that test being to take it away. God gives you a test for the purpose of that test for you to learn the lessons in that test. To glorify Him through that test. To reach the victorious conclusion of that test. And then once that's done, and there's no more purpose for the test to remain, then He Himself will take it away. Because He doesn't do anything for no purpose. When its purpose is achieved, then His ecbasis will take that test away. And it might be your physical death. But he will take that away when his completion is, has, has been reached. Am I making sense today? So this, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Why did he assign the test? Again, I put you back to remembrance of what we taught in 1 Corinthians 10. All testing is common to man. But he is faithful. Will not test us beyond that which we're able to bear. And with that testing, he provides the ekbasis. Rendered the way of escape. I, I don't like that translation but the ekbasis the exit the victorious conclusion the victorious conclusion so when god gives you cancer or this this let's just take this today's prayer request the, the co-worker here of of robbins not co-worker the, the fellow classmate of robbins she's assigned this this uh this breast cancer god the father directed that he permitted that as part of his eternal plan from alpha to omega the father included that in his divine decrees why was it breast cancer? Why was it not lung cancer? Why was it not bone cancer? Why was it not pancreatic cancer? Why was it, why was it breast cancer? Well, the Father decided that. He determined that. And is it stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four? We don't know. But whatever it is, God, God determined that. He determined where the cancer is, the severity of that cancer. He also determined the duration of that test. How long is that test going to last? And so... Is it going to last a month? Is it going to last a year? Is it going to be treated? Is it going to be... What's the duration of that test? Is she going to be in heaven three weeks from now? We don't know, but God does. The intensity, the nature, intensity, and duration of every test is a part of His decree. And so when I start arguing against it, I don't like the, the nature of it. I don't like the intensity of it. I don't like the duration of it. End it now. I'm putting myself in... Sovereignty over God. Who am I to do that? For this purpose, I came to this hour. God is a Savior, but He doesn't save us from His sovereign assignments. He puts us in those assignments for His purpose, for His glory. The answer here is, Father, glorify Your name. See that in verse 28? Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. We'll, we'll tackle that next week. How does the Father glorify christ how has he done so in the past how will he do so in the future and how will he do so in eternity future hmm. he doesn't say from his sovereign assignments understand thirdly the father's glory is the achievement of the father's purpose the father's glory is the achievement of the father's purpose So everything He puts you through is for His purpose. It's to glorify His Son. It's to magnify His Son. To glorify His own plan and magnifying His Son. Glorify your name. When you have a test, don't say, take it away, I don't like it. Say, Father, glorify your name. Thank you for this test. Bring me through it. Teach me what I'm supposed to learn in this test. Glorify your name through this test. Demonstrate to every fallen angel in the universe how faithful you are by meeting my needs day by day, moment by moment, through this test. 
This includes the Father's purpose for creating volitional spheres of creation. God loves the cheerful giver. It pleases the Father that, that believers are actively operating on a volitional basis consistent with His design. God doesn't want us to be slaves. He wants us to be willing participants in, in His plan to glorify Jesus Christ. And so you've got 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Philemon 14, 1 Peter 5, 2. Also, you can go back to the Old Testament and see it's not new for the church age. The free will offerings were a very vivid part of Israel's worship. First Chronicles 29, 17 through 19, you have the message of David there talking about the, the volitional service to God. The Father's glory is the achievement of the Father's purpose. And this includes the Father's purpose for creating volitional spheres of creation. Think about it. Just like Christ, you and I get to say, not our will, but thine be done. It's a powerful thing to say, Father, you have created me with volition. And I'm going to use my volition to be in agreement with your volition. And your volition, Father, is putting me through this test right now that I think kind of stinks. <laughs> All right. But it's only in my opinion that it stinks. In your opinion, it's necessary. So your will be done. I want to surrender my volition that you gave me. I want to surrender it now willingly back to what you want done. Not what I want done. And this is the this is the ultimate thing. Our very beings, our very will belong to him because he provided it. So uh, are you familiar with these verses? These verses, I think, are, are I use them a lot. I use them when I speak to the um, fatalistic five point Calvinists. Uh, I, I use these verses a lot when I encounter folks who don't think we have volition who believe that God's sovereignty determines everything and that He makes us do everything that He wants us to do. And so it's, it's a good selection of verses that shows us that God doesn't make us do anything. He wants us to be volitional. He wants us to freely love His Son. That's why He created us as volitional beings. He didn't just create people who had to love Jesus. What value is that? He wanted to create people who would love Jesus for all eternity like He loves His Son for all eternity. Each one must do as He has purposed in His heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not under compulsion. A compulsion is, a, is anathema to God. Cheerful, volitional, willingly. The want-tos. God loves a cheerful giver. Philemon 14, that your goodness might not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. You familiar with that little letter that Paul wrote to uh, Philemon about the runaway slave, Onesimus? We're almost done. Hopefully that's not too distracting. It feels warmer in here, doesn't it? I think, the, I think he's got our heater working. Um. He says, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. If it's forced, what value is there? First Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, 
not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Coercion is not his will. Volition is his will. And that it's the glory of God that his plan, his purpose is achieved in spite of every angelic and human volitional decision that's ever been made or ever will be made. God's purpose can never be thwarted. We never make a choice that he uh, gets surprised by. His middle knowledge, his omniscience allows him to know every choice, all of the what ifs, what we're going to do, what we would do, what we might what we would do under other circumstances, what we will do under these circumstances. He has total control over the circumstances. And he knows what our choices are going to be and he's never thwarted. This is why the in the uh, tribulation he has to give complete restraint. Uh, he removes the restraint so the, uh, Satan has a free hand. And yet what happens to Satan's plan? It's thwarted. Human volition trips him up. And he hates it. <laughs> he absolutely hates it. He puts Antichrist on the global throne, this great man of peace, and it falls apart because those pesky, volitional human beings aren't going to cooperate. And the, 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 the dragon who vowed he would be like the Most High God is so pathetically impotent in the face of global human volition. It's, it's just on demonstration for everyone to observe. We'll close here. Well, I'll give you... It's a point four as well, but um, let's look at First Chronicles 29. The um, First Chronicles 29. The nature of free will. You know, Old Testament had a lot of have-tos, and law had a lot of mandatory activities. But beyond the have-tos, even in the Old Testament, there were still the want-tos of of grace and freedom and and, and volition, the free will offerings. It says in First Chronicles 29, 17 through 19. Well, and even back up to verse 14. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? Why are we so blessed? Who are we? Why do we have a building like this? You know, why? Um, who are we? All things come from you and from your hand. And it is from your hand we have given you. Well, it's a privilege to, for grace giving. It's a privilege to support the ministry because it's his money anyway. He's blessed us with it. Why has he provided us with this? So we can be spending it on ourselves, partying in this life. Well, it's from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no hope that is apart from your will. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to you to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. Now notice verse 17. Since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and you delight in uprightness. What's uprightness? It's the integrity of righteousness. It's your volition aligned with his volition. I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. Willingly. Free will, volition. And the glorious thing was David did all this after he was told he couldn't build the temple. God said, you can't build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. You're a man of war. You're a man of bloodshed. Your son will be a man, a man of peace. He will build the temple. You can't build the temple. And so what does David do? 
he praises the Lord. He says, hallelujah, I can't build it, but I'm going to fund it. <laughs> I'm going to fund it. I'm going to stockpile the lumber. I'm going to stockpile the gems. I'm going to pay the, the everything. Willingly, I have done this. Isn't that glorious? I love that. Because, you know, you and I typically, or I'll just say me, uh, you know, typically human beings would start pouting, right? What do you mean I can't do this? I want to do this. God said I can't do this. Well, that's not fair. Why, why won't God let me do this? I'm here. I wanted to build him a nice temple. He said, no. Well, then, huh. okay, fine. I'll show him. I don't want to I didn't want to do it anyway. Start grumbling. Or who does he think he is? Why does he get to do it? And I don't get to do it. I'm better than he is. Okay. That is just carnal and dark and wicked and hideous. And let's let's be like David. Man, isn't that great? I can't build it, but I'm going to have a son and he's going to build it. And the neat thing is, is that these promises regarding his son, they didn't even get bounced or thwarted because of the, you know, how did Solomon come about? It's called Bathsheba, adultery. All right. And even that, there's grace there. I'm going to teach the life of David all over again. This is, this is good stuff. Well. I've willingly offered all these things so that with joy I've seen your people who are present here. And they get to follow his example too. They make their offerings willingly to you. David sets the example with his volitional offerings and all the people respond to leadership and grace. They make their offerings willingly to you. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people. And direct their heart to you and give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, to do them all, to build the temple for which I have made provision. And I'm thankful that uh, David didn't live long enough to see Solomon's stupidity, <laughs> right? David got to die and go to Abraham's bosom and, and uh, this was the prayer of his heart. But it deals with volition god the father created volitional spheres of creation and it's it's our glory to surrender our volition to him this patriological prayer focus is going to be repeated right up to and including the crucifixion again and again and again and again we'll pick this up next week but we'll show you the subsequent events in matthew 26 and matthew 27 and luke 23 and john 19 and and we'll we'll show you how all of this is simply psalm 22 verse by verse my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he's hanging on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. And I don't believe he stops at verse 1. I think he works his way through the entire psalm while he's hanging on the cross. So we'll talk about that as well. And then we'll get back to these Greeks. We'll get back to these questions. And then we're going to talk about what does it mean by the attraction of sacrifice? What is this attraction? As Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me and that's the attraction the drawing the father draws the son draws and we need to understand that drawing or we won't be effective evangelists okay no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him we need to understand that um so we can become co-workers with that as we proclaim the gospel message so we have that coming up as well father thank you for your truth thank you for this day thank you for this study thank you for uh emmanuel father not only uh, of course your son emmanuel we celebrate his birth this coming weekend, but um, our AC and heater tech today, Father, giving us heat 
He's also Emmanuel, and I thank you for that. And Father, just uh, the privilege and blessing it is to fellowship in your word and to meet new believers and to just rejoice in how faithful you are. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.